0: Hey everyone! Today we get to chapters 10 and 11 in humility, which cover two of our least favorite things, being wrong and suffering. And yet we know that both our sin and suffering are going to be part of our lives as sinners in a fallen world. And Mahaney argues that we should allow these aspects of our lives to lead us to humility before God and others, our ultimate dependence to be on God, and our practical need for Christian community. Starting out we all know that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that we've sinned before, before Christ saved us, and we know that we still battle against the sinful flesh. And for those of us as leaders in the church, this isn't really contested theologically. But there is a big difference between acknowledging the fact that I am a sinner and being in the habit of confessing specific sins to others. Simply acknowledging that we are sinful without being in the habit of confessing specific sins can lead us to harboring our sins, letting them go unchecked. And of course, confessing specific sins requires a humility, and it also breeds further humility. There's an equally subtle risk if we feel like we've got our own sin fully understood, or worse, fully under control— as a general rule of thumb, if I ever find myself saying, oh, I don't need to confess this sin, it's too small, or it requires too much context, then that's usually an indicator that I need to confess it. 1 John 1, 5-9 teaches us the same balance. It says this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we have to not only acknowledge that we have sinned, but also to be in the practice of confessing our specific sins. The question that that Mahaney poses on page 130 are really helpful here. I'd encourage you to work through them with your spouse and or your DG. You know, if you find as you're reflecting on these questions that you haven't received any correction from those around you, it might mean that you're not sharing honestly or specifically enough with them or it might mean that you're not hearing the correction they're trying to give. And if either of those is the case, again, I'd encourage you to bring it up in those trusted circles with your spouse, uh, close friends, or your DG this week. There's of course the question for us as leaders, how should we go about modeling this invitation uh, for correction and confession in an appropriate manner in our communities? There are a couple of principles that I consider when it comes to these topics in community. First, before we launch into any personal invitations for corrections or before we correct others, it's important that we've talked about why we correct and how we correct others. Inviting correction um, and correcting others should always be done for the building up of the other person. It should be always spoken truthfully in love, and it should be spoken with the plank-eye humility uh, where we are concerned with the other person's well-being above our own. Second, it's important that we actually invite others in our communities to correct us and point out sin where they see it. If I don't ever invite my community to do so, it leaves us at a distance as though I'm not human or I'm not approachable, I'm playing some sort of varsity holier-than-thou Christianity. This does tend to be a more passive invitation, namely I'm not asking that we all go around the room and have everyone share where they think I'm sinning, but we want to make this invitation sincerely. And be, and be authentically open to correction. And that goes a long way in setting a culture of edifying interactions with each other. It also helps when you see an area in someone else that needs correction, that they understand the heart of that correction is for their good, and then that you're not apart from that either. Third, I think it's appropriate for us to share examples of how God is convicting us of sin and showing us where we need to grow. This should come naturally to us as we enter the application portion of our discussions in community. Ideally, we're sharing alongside others the convictions and applications that we're taking away from the passage at hand or the discussion that night. Uh, Fourth, when it comes to confessing sins, specifically in community, I think there are some healthy ways and some unhealthy ways for us to do this. In general, I believe the confession of a sin should mirror the scope of the sin, plus perhaps a few trusted others for accountability. For example, if I've sinned against my wife, confessing that sin should first be to God and second to my wife, and perhaps third in the context of my DG for accountability. Sharing the details of that would not necessarily be appropriate for the wider community, unless it was something that I said or did to my wife in the context of community, in which case it might be appropriate to confess in that wider setting. If, on the other hand, I said something sinfully hurtful to someone in community, then that would be something I would need to confess. And I would start with my confession to God and then directly to the other person and then to the whole community as well, in that order. I'm mindful too that any confession of my sin does not lead others astray nor cause me to sin further. So in sharing, I'm not presenting temptation to others, nor am I trying to get others to see exactly or feel the way that I felt or act in response to a certain way. In summary on this point is the fact that we are not exempt as leaders, but because we are leading, we must be all the more vigilant for our sin and to be walking in the light. Mahaney says this on page 133. Be assured that this is... No less true if you're a pastor or teacher or ministry worker, and I would add, or a community lead or women's discipleship lead. There's no pastoral privilege in relation to sin. There's no ministry exemption from the op- opposition of the flesh. There's only a heightened responsibility to oppose sin and to weaken the flesh as an example to the flock. And note here, this isn't a call for us to be perfect. Yes, we should certainly be striving to to pursue increasing holiness. But what's in view here is our posture of heart that deals with our sinfulness and invites others in to help us grow. And perhaps as challenging as confessing our sin and inviting corrections from others is the inevitable suffering in our lives. I must admit, I've been privileged to have fairly little suffering in my life, and until recently my treatment of suffering has been a rather conceptual thing. But this year, God has used suffering in my life to reveal my inability to control the external circumstances of my life and to show me my need for him to sustain me, my need for him to be my rock and my refuge. Mahaney uses the example of Habakkuk to show how our posture of heart can change in the context of suffering. Habakkuk is in the midst of real suffering, personally, and seeing suffering in those around him. We can't miss this fact this isn't his master's thesis on the nature of suffering but rather it's his lived experience crying out to god and his posture of heart changes as he hears from god the assurance that god is with him that god is sovereignly at work even amidst his suffering throughout scripture god promises to be with us to be with his people working in all of our life for our ultimate good we see this theme throughout the prophets Here highlighted in Habakkuk, but we see the same heart in Lamentations that even amidst extreme suffering, we read Lamentations 3, which says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We see the same promise throughout the Psalms as David cries out in distress or lament as a remind, and is reminded of God's faithfulness. Psalm 22 is one example. starts with this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest but it continues with this Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel in you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried out and were rescued in you they trusted and were not put to shame And of course we see this in Jesus's life and his commandments as well Jesus tells us plainly that we will face suffering and tribulation as his followers but we should take heart because he has conquered the world We see in the Great Commission, the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, that he sends us and promises to be with us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God's presence to us is a real comfort in our suffering to know that we're not alone, to know that God is still sovereign over everything, and that He is good and wants our ultimate good and is working even these hard things to our ultimate good. And so, as suffering inevitably comes to us, we have a choice in how we respond. We can allow suffering to harden our hearts and our own pride and entitlement, or we can allow our suffering to draw us closer to God in humility. And when we draw close to Him, We rely on him as our shield and our strength, our stronghold and our refuge. And not only is that good for us, but it's good for those around us. As our communities see us trusting in God, by God's grace, it can build their faith and trust as well. So that's part of my prayer for us all as we talk through these things. Please pray with me now. Father, thank you for these reminders that our suffering and our sin is not outside of your sovereign control. Thank you for promising to be with us in our suffering and to be near us as we confess our sins. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed be near to us and allow us to see ourselves rightly, inviting others in uh, to help us see our sin more clearly. I pray that you would continue to work in the lives of these men and women and through them in their communities, that they might walk humbly with each other. I pray that you would build up our communities, build up our body uh, to be places of deep encouragement to your glory and the good of all that are involved. In Jesus' name, amen.